A reading from the history of the early church as recorded in the book of Acts chapter 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In our home, we have our TV hooked up to our uh, cloud photo account. If you don't know what that is, it's just all the photos we've taken over the whole time we've had phones. Uh, when nothing else is on on our TV, that's what's on. Uh, I just sort of scrolls through all the photos that we have. And I'm amazed these days of how many photos we have taken over the last, I don't know, what is it, dozen years? We've probably been carrying these high-definition cameras around in our pockets that we call phones. Uh, we just have pictures of everything. When my grandchildren ask me, hey, Papa, can you show us pictures of you when you were little? I don't have many pictures of me when I was little. Uh, I'm the third uh, in a family, two older sisters and me, and I guess my mom just, she thought, I, I don't want to see him no more. So there were, there were, I have a picture of me as a baby. I have a picture of me when I was in elementary school. When I got to be a teenager, nobody wanted to be around me. There are no pictures. There are just no pictures. I have, my oldest granddaughter is uh, now 11, I, I think. I'm probably wrong on that, and they'll tell me later. But uh, I have thousands of pictures of my grandchildren. And, uh, you know, we've taken so many pictures now at this point that, uh, and you know this about the pictures you take, uh, pictures are just so ubiquitous now, you don't even delete the bad ones. We'll have six of the same photo, several of them are blurry, we smile at all of them. They all come up, we never delete them, they all go across the camera, they're, they're just amazing because, uh, you know, everybody just takes photos everywhere they are of everything. But when I was younger, again, that isn't the way it was. We had this thing, for those of you who are younger and don't know this, uh, we had a camera we called an Instamatic. It was not instant. It was not in any way instant. And what they meant by it was you didn't have to focus it. it uh, you didn't have to out do anything with it. You just point it. You shot. But then you had to do something with the film to send it off to some place where they did a magical process and weeks later you'd get this pack of photos back i say weeks later but the truth is if you're like a lot of people where i grew up they would forget that they had ever made film and then like three years later they'd send the pack off and they'd go oh look where we went on vacation three years ago <laughs> because film was so expensive you just didn't send it off and you'd eventually get it back and you'd be surprised you had eight uh, eight pictures or something. But if you really were impatient, you got yourself one of these. This was called a Polaroid camera. Now, this is not actually one. This is a copy that they've made recently. And this was for people who wanted something that was more instamatic. And I tried this in first service, took a picture. And you know, people often wonder what I can see from up here. The photo, what it saw was lights. That's all it saw. The photo that I took first service is about eight lights. That's all it saw. So I'm going to try taking it down lower here. We'll turn it on and see if it can get under the lights. I'll take you people over here because the singing on this side this morning, exceptional people. My, 
my, my section was rocking this morning. I don't know what y'all were doing today, but normally when I sing, I don't hear nobody but me, but you people were on it today. So here we go. Let's see what happens. And uh, a little photo pops out of the top of this thing. Now, uh, this got, uh, when you had it in your hand like this, you thought you had a photo. But you didn't. <laughs> you had what could become a photo eventually. And if you're really impatient, and nobody bought a Polaroid who wasn't already impatient, what you tried to do to make it go faster was you, you shake it, which also did nothing, but it made you feel like you were doing something. It actually did not improve the process at all, but people shook it, and eventually it got put in a song, and it still meant nothing. And then you would tear it apart and the developer would be less and then you'd look at it and it still was a terrible photo. It was just not nearly as good as it was. Now, as you thought it might be. Now, I bring all of that up because we, for the last few weeks, been talking about our church, particularly our congregation and the vision uh, for our church and where we're going in the future. And I think people have thought the whole time, and I think probably I have thought and maybe have even uh, given the impression that this is the way it was, that when you talk about the vision of the church because it's God's thing, that the vision is just crystal clear, <laughs> that you know everything, and you know every detail, and you know how it's going to go and what it's going to look like. But I don't think it's ever been that way. I mean, I don't think it's ever been that way. Not since the very first time that word that we eventually got translated to us as church came into being. Because when the church is first mentioned by Jesus in the Bible, nobody, I mean, nobody knows what he's talking about. It's one of those things that like when Jesus would talk and people would nod their heads and they did not have a clue what he was saying. This is one of those things. They, they, don't, they don't know where he's going. This all takes place, uh, Matthew, one of the followers of Jesus, tells us. It takes place in a place where even people that were following Jesus, I guarantee you none of them had ever been. It's in a place that's up in the far northeast corner of what is Israel. In fact, it's as far northeast as you can go in Israel and still be in Israel. You actually have to cross over the Jordan River to get to where it is. I thought somebody was telling me something. Uh, <laughs> I got all scared there for a second. <laughs> Somebody said, like, gun or something. I don't know what y'all are saying. Uh, anyway, it was far, it's as far northeast as you can go, cross over the Jordan River. It's a place called the Decapolis. And all that means is there are ten cities. It's originally ten cities that had come together. They're all Greek. And so Jews didn't go there because the only people that lived there were people they shouldn't associate with. They were Gentiles. They just didn't go. But for the particular event that Jesus wants to announce, and I think, I, know, I, I think he knows why he's going for sure, he takes his little group of 12 guys along with all the followers, the women and men that are also with them at that time, and they head to the Decapolis. And when they get there, they walk around. It's a place called Caesarea Philippi in the time, the time of Jesus. Now, Julius Caesar had been emperor, and at his death, he had them declare him God. At his death, when he was eulogized, they said Julius Caesar was God. And so Caesar Augustus, who was his adopted son, he, of course, became the son of God. And this city was a place to worship the son of God, Julius Caesar's son, Caesar Augustus. That's why it's called Caesarea Philippi. 
Also in this place, it had been the place where gods had been worshipped forever. In fact, there was a temple to Pan there. Pan was the god of the goats. And there was a particular cave in that particular place where uh, the mouth of the, of the river came out. And uh, people had always said it was the gates of Hades. It was the entrance to the place of the dead right at that place. And so every, everything's being worshipped. It's a beautiful city. So Jesus and his group, they walk around and they see the whole sights. They see everybody worshiping, bowing before the Son of God, Caesar Augustus, and bowing before Pan and all the other gods that are worshiped there. And when he gets done with the whole thing, when the whole thing finally comes to a place, after looking around, he gets the group back together and he says to them, seeing all that you've seen, who do people say I am? What do people say about me? In a place like this and Peter who he's never hesitant to speak up he says well you're the Messiah you're the king you're you're the son of God and Jesus said Peter that's exactly right and I know these other guys are intimidated by you but you ain't that smart God's the one that told you that God's the one that gave you that insight and he looks around at them and at that point he then says I'm going to tell you something today that's going to happen in the future. I'm going to make a prediction, and I'm just telling you, the significance of this prediction is hard. It's hard to imagine because you're a part of the prediction. He gets to the end of this, and he says, on this rock, on what Peter has just said, on this rock, looking around at all you've seen, in this place where everybody's worshipped, on this rock of what you said, that I'm the Son of God, I will build my church And not even the gates of Hades. And I think he points at the worship of Pan. And he said, not even the gates to the dead. No one will be able to stop it. Now, Peter and Jesus and everyone there in his little group, they speak Aramaic. They've stopped speaking Hebrew. It's almost a dead language at this point. They're speaking a, a... sort of a mixture of it they speak Aramaic but eventually the New Testament that we have it gets written in Greek for the first time so Matthew when he's remembering this a few years later after Jesus has died resurrected he begins to write it down and when he remembers what Jesus says about the gates of hell won't stand against my church he has to choose a word Jesus doesn't actually say the word church in fact when when Matthew gets ready to choose the word he's going to translate he chooses the Greek word ekklesia Now, you ought to know, ecclesia is just a word. It's just a common word. It actually meant sort of a political gathering, a gathering of the the citizens in in Rome. It meant my gathering, my assembly, uh, that I'm going to call against it. So Jesus made this prediction. I'm going to build my gathering. I'm going to build my group of people. And everything you saw here, it will not stand against it. So now you have a picture of the context. It's Jesus. It's it's these 12 men. It's the few women and the others that they actually supply all the money for the, the men are, that are around them. And they're in this big city, and Jesus says, everything you've seen that's so oppressive to you and everything you know, I'm going to build my gathering. And everything you said, you've seen, it will fall before it. Now, they have to be standing around looking at that little handful of people thinking, Where's the rest of the folks that are going to make that happen? <laughs> I mean, it's just us. So what happened 
Well, it's the tragedy of translation of why you think about it the way you do. 300 years later, the, the gathering that Jesus predicted, it took place. And everything in Rome fell before it. In fact, in 300 years, Christianity would become the religion of the Roman Empire. The, group, the people that had killed Jesus, that had built those great cities, calling others the Son of God, they'd all say that Jesus was the Son of God. And then people start taking the writings of these people that had written about Jesus, and they start translating them into the languages of the people. And like all translations, when you get to some words, well, you just can't translate them. There isn't any way to get the exact meaning from one group of one language to the next language. And when it comes to this word ecclesia, they don't do what they did with words like baptism and just transliterate them. Instead, what they did was they chose a German word at the time that was the word kirch. Now, what does kirch sound like? It sounds like church. But the unfortunate part of it is kirch meant the house of God. It meant the place of God. It didn't mean gathering. It didn't mean assembly. It didn't mean people. So down through the years to the place that you and I are, when people begin to think about the church, what they think about is they think of, well, they think of this building. They think of places like this scattered all across our country, and they think that what Jesus said is, I'll build these buildings, <laughs> and nothing will stand against it. But just so you know, Jesus predicted a people. Jesus predicted an assembly. Jesus predicted a following. And he said, in the face of that movement of people, nothing will stand. The very next words Jesus says after that, he says to them, now I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to crucify me. I'll be mocked. I'll be put to death. And Peter tells him, that can't ever happen. And Jesus says, you're like Satan to me. You've got to get behind me. And the rest of them try to talk him out of it because they know if he goes to Jerusalem with everything that's happened, they will indeed put him to death. And they don't want to see that happen. But Jesus goes, and on Friday, they watch him die. And I can only imagine that if you went to Peter on that Friday night or on the next day on Saturday morning and you said, Peter, do you still think Jesus is the Son of God? Do you still believe that he's going to create a gathering? Jesus, did Jesus start a movement that's never going to end? I think Peter would have said what you would have said if you'd have been there and you'd been the one to deny him a few days before. And you said, do you still believe in him? He, I think he would have said, well, I hoped. I thought. But one thing I know for sure is you can't kill God. And I saw him die. And now all the dreams we had and the visions we had of what it was going to become, well, it's time for me to go back fishing. All of that's dead. But then Sunday happened. And Jesus was resurrected. And 50 days later, in the very place where Jesus is executed, in the place where he's put on trial, in the temple where the priest had lied about him, Peter and the rest of the apostles stand up and they say, God's son stood among you, we were with him, you saw him, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead and you all ought to give your lives to him. And on that day, those words that you heard at the first, Peter said, this is the day of the Lord. 
This is the day that people have been dreaming about. This is the vision. This is the point at which the congregation gets unleashed. And on that very first day, uh, 3,000 people give their life, and the gathering and the congregation was born. But the vision of what it would be, well, it still had to be shaken a good bit. It wasn't at all clear yet of what it would be, but eventually they'd see it very clearly. The very first sermon ever preached by the early church contains a glimpse of this ongoing vision God has for his people. It's recorded in an ancient document about the life of the early church called the Acts of the Apostles. This sermon took place after Jesus had ascended to heaven. You see, after his death and resurrection, Jesus remained on earth to prepare his followers for what was coming next. And after 40 days, Jesus returned to heaven and instructed his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit arrived in power. And soon after, the Holy Spirit showed up in a big way. These disciples were all together praying, and suddenly the Holy Spirit descended upon them. They began miraculously speaking in languages they'd never known before, and they took to the streets to share what God was doing. During this time in Jerusalem was the Festival of Pentecost, where Jews from all over the world made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And on this day of the festival, these Jews who all spoke different languages heard these early Christians speaking to them in their native tongues. And with this gathered crowd, the first pastor of the early church, Peter, began to preach. And he told the crowd that what they were witnessing was not just some strange event. It was a miraculous sign of what God had done through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He explained this to them by quoting an ancient prophecy about the day of the Lord. Now, before we get into the prophecy, let's talk about the day of the Lord. For ancient Hebrew prophets, the day of the Lord was the way they would speak about this future day when God would interrupt the normal way of the world and act in a clear and powerful way for the good of his people. Now, just like the Facebook prophets of our day that want to point out all the signs of the times, the Jewish people of Jesus' day argued a lot about what that meant. Would God bring an end to the world as they knew it? Would he force out the Roman oppressors and establish an earthly government in Israel? What did it mean? Well, Peter makes clear, this day of the Lord was a day when God acted in human history in such a clear and powerful way that things could not go back to business as usual. And that action was the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. In Jesus' death on the cross, God had put to death the old order of things, and in his resurrection, God had brought about a new creation, a new kind of life in his kingdom, where the broken things of the world could be reconciled back to God and God's intention for them. And so Peter points to this miraculous act happening before them as evidence that the day of the Lord has come, and he proves this to them by reminding them of the words of the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. What's the evidence that God has done something decisively in human history? Peter doesn't take them to the empty tomb and show them the evidence. He doesn't have Mary come up and talk about the virgin birth. He points to this group of people whose lives had become the evidence that God was doing something in them. 
God had promised that in the last days, all people who wanted his rule in their life would receive the Spirit of God. And this is what they were witnessing in front of them. It wasn't just a select group of special people who had received God's power in their lives. It was old men dreaming dreams. People who thought their best days were behind them suddenly got a new energy for their future as they felt God was birthing new life in them. Young men catching a vision of the kind of life God could have for them. And Joel mentions it will be your sons and daughters who prophesy, both men and women who will receive the Spirit of God. This is important because it was God's way of saying, no one is excluded. This isn't just for powerful, educated, wealthy men. It's for the old and young, men and women. Everyone gets to be a part of this new thing God is doing in the world through Jesus. And it was this group and groups of spirit-led men and women, young and old alike, throughout history who have taken God's new creation throughout our world. People who have allowed God's power and presence to transform their lives. And because of that, they could not return to business as usual. They felt compelled to give their lives to bring God's kingdom to earth to go into the most broken places and bring wholeness, to step into the lives of the hurting and bring healing, to shine a light into the darkness of our world and say, the day of the Lord has come. God has done something through Jesus that has made a new kind of life possible if you want it. So come back to God. Well, church, the day of the Lord has come. Jesus Christ is King. But we also know that there is another day of the Lord that is coming. God has done something already decisively in history to bring about His new creation. We've already sang about it. Jesus Christ was crucified. He was raised to life. But we also know that He's coming back again. And with Him is coming the fullness of this new creation that He started 2,000 years ago. And in this in-between time, in this time we live between the day of the Lord here and the coming day of the Lord, you and I have been called to be faithful witnesses of this new creation. To be people to live as if the fullness of the new creation were already here. That what Jesus said, that the kingdom of God is here, well that's true. To be what the Apostle Paul calls ministers of reconciliation. Ambassadors for Christ and His kingdom. Calling all people to come back to God. But we've been trying to say this, this whole series we've been in. For that to happen, that means we need all of us on board together. Old and young. Multi-generational. At the beginning of the summer, our staff went away for three days uh, on a retreat to start to kind of think and dream and pray and envision what does the next five years at Community Christian look like? What's the five-year vision we have? And it's a really great vision. It has a lot of stuff in there. It's beautiful about the people we want to reach, the, what's going to happen in the life of our church, what's going to happen in our community because of our church. But here is the truth. God did not give a vision to the church simply to people who get paid for ministry. God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Old men will dream dreams. Young men will have visions. And so that means if we are to be the church that God envisions because it's God's church, which means it's his vision, then that means that we need all people in our church to start dreaming 
and envisioning and to be all in together. What that really means is we need you to get involved to serve and to get invested in the lives of people here. And that is not because we need something from you. The truth is we want this for you because here's the truth. When you start to invest in what God is doing, you invest your time, you invest your energy, you invest your resources in what God is doing. When you get invested in the lives of people, when you don't just sit in a chair looking forward, but you sit and you face somebody and you can look into their eyes and what God is doing in their life. When you invest in church, you begin to di think differently about the church. As you begin to see what God can do through your life, where you begin to experience the power of the Spirit working in your life and transforming you, but also working through your life and transforming the lives of other people. Suddenly, you start catching a vision, and not just a vision for where you want your life to go and where you want your career to go and where you want your finances to go one day, but you start to catch a vision for these people and for this community. And it's not just about your life. It's about the lives of the people that you're invested in, the people that you care about, the people that you love and you serve. You begin dreaming, but not just your dream, not just what you wish for your kids, for your grandkids for your career, you start dreaming dreams that God might actually inspire in you something that could happen in the life of somebody else. You start to gain a hunger for more of God's spirit and more of his power and his presence in your life. And then suddenly your prayers are no longer just about you and your worries and the things you've got to get through. You start to pray bigger kind of prayers. You begin to realize that if these dreams and these prayers that you pray are ever going to come to fruition, you cannot be the one to do it. It's going to need more than just your time, more than just your energy, more than just your resources. The power of God is going to be behind it. And so prayer, well, it just becomes something that is natural to you and you actually start praying without ceasing because you need God to do all of these things. And then then when you start to see answers to those prayers, and not just the things in your life, when you start praying for a child in this church or a student in this church or somebody that's in your small group, and you start to see those prayers answered, your faith grows and your passion grows. And then suddenly what Jesus said life was about, which was seeking first his kingdom and what he said was right and good, it actually becomes a priority to you because it's what you suddenly want to see more of. And then slowly over time, there is a new life giving birth within you, a life that has been transformed by the Spirit of God, because you gave yourself over to His will and His way, His dreams, His visions. And it is the only life that could truly be called life. The only life that could honestly be looked in the mirror and said, that is good and pleasing all of the time. And the reason why is because when I'm invested in God's kingdom, when my goals and my dreams and my visions are about seeking first what he wants in this life, suddenly how good and pleasing my life is not based upon how good and pleasing my week went or how good and pleasing my circumstances are. It is based and rooted in his kingdom. And in case you didn't know, his kingdom is unshakable. Nothing's going to happen to you. And you are firmly rooted in that. The past few months of 
my life and my family's life has been incredibly difficult for us. But I've never had to question how good and pleasing life with God is because I see it in you. Because I've seen what God is doing through our lives together. I have seen new life in these three men that are in my on-mission group and the new life that's birthed every week when someone decides I'm going to take a next step and I'll take yes to what God has for me. I see the children in our church who are learning that God loves them for the first time. I see students in our church who are catching a vision for what life could actually be like and it turns out it's nothing like anyone else is telling them it is. They're finding a new kind of vision for their future. I see families that are finding new life and healing. I see friendships that are being born through small groups. I see people that find a new energy and purpose for life when they start serving someone other than themselves. And this whole past few months, there have been people who have carried me in prayer, and I have been able, instead of just praying for me and my circumstances, to carry them in prayer just as well. And I see God's blessing on our community in a thousand ways. And each week when we come together, we remind ourselves when we sing and we read the scripture and we pray, we say, Jesus Christ is king. He is good. His kingdom is here and it shall never fail. He loves us. And I believe God is not done. I hope you believe that God is not done with us either. I want more and more of his power and his presence to be poured out on us. And so I'm asking you, if you are here and you are currently serving, and you are currently investing in relationships around here, do not give up. All of your energy, all of your time, the weeks that you don't want to show up, but you still show up anyway, and you still choose to say that my life is not necessarily going the way I want it to go, but there is life in Jesus and in his kingdom. Those times that you show up, it is not in vain. God is doing a new thing among us here. And if you're not currently investing, you're not currently serving around here in the lives of anyone else, we're asking you to take a step. We say this all the time. We want you to be involved around here. For some of you, you need to get back involved around here. And the reason why is because you got to go out there. You got to get a hold of that Polaroid vision. And like the great Atlanta based prophet Andre 3000 said, you got to shake it. Shake it like a Polaroid picture. You got to shake it. And here's why. And here's what I'm trying to say about this. This is why we need all of you because some of you think you see a vision for where this could go. And you see things that no one else can see until you get your hands on the picture, you don't see anything yet. And until you get your hands on the picture, we can't see what you see. But someone's actually got to get involved, get their hands involved in someone else's lives. And we need you. You can see something we can't see, but there's a truth. Until you get involved, there's something you can't see. And you won't know. So this is why we need some of you who are older. I say older because y'all don't like it when I say old. You don't feel old, but you're in the er for sure. We need you to stay involved. We need some of you to get back involved. As someone who's younger, we have a lot of students in this church who don't like me to call myself young, so I'm er, all right? You see something we don't see. You have experience that we don't have. 
We need you to start dreaming dreams again. And not about retirement. We need you dreaming dreams of what could happen in the lives of other people. What could happen in this community. I know some of you have served You've invested in the past, and now you think it is someone else's turn to step up and do something. But we say this all the time now. If you're not dead, you're not done. And God is not done with you. God is not done investing in your life. We need your experience. We need your wisdom. We need the perspectives you have that younger people cannot have. We need you. Young people, the moms and dads who are and the active part of it, and you're tired, and you're worn out, and Sundays are mostly about you and your kids, or the single people who are here, or the newlyweds that are here, and you got a whole life in front of you, and that's where you're spending all your time and energy is your ambitions and your drive and what you've got. We need you to catch a vision that there is a different kind of life that actually is life, and it has not much to do with you investing in you. It's not about you chasing your success and your happiness, and every experience you could possibly have. How good and pleasing your life is, is not really based too much on you. We need you to serve and to invest, and we need your energy, and we need the new ideas you have, and we need the insight that only you can bring. And here's the truth, you need these older believers in your life. Some of you have no spiritual parents in your life. You have parents in your life. But you know what I mean when I say you have no spiritual parents in your life. And you need some. And you need some spiritual grandparents in your kids' lives. People who could invest. Could be involved in what's going on in their lives. You want this for your kids. You want them surrounded by other believers who when your kids, and they will get to the age where everything you say is idiotic and you don't know how life works, you need other believers who can stand around, who have invested in them and they care about them and they know, hey, you care about me and they will point them back to the king and his kingdom and what he's doing. We need more perspectives than just young and old. Joel said, God says he'll pour out his spirit on both men and women. Throughout church history, unfortunately, nearly all of the biblical interpretation, nearly all of the church leadership has been done by male voices and male perspective, which means 50% of the body of Christ has been involved in 0% of the interpretation and 0% of the new ideas is involved. And so we need both men and women involved. Here at Community Christian, we want to get this right. And that means we need you to involve, but it starts with serving and then leading and then getting involved around here. We don't want to just be multi-generational. We want to be multi-ethnic. We want to be multicultural. We want the unique gifts and perspectives that the blessings that come from the multicolored, multicultural creativity of God's diversity to be represented here in our church, to be dreaming and envisioning the future of the church. We want children of every ethnicity to be taught, to be led, to be guided, by teachers and leaders and preachers who look like them so maybe one day they could look and say, there's a place for me in God's kingdom. There's something I could do in God's kingdom. But this will not happen if we do not all get involved. If all of us don't start serving and dreaming and shaking things up so that God's vision of what our church could be could come to fruition because 
The vision for this church is bigger than one pastor. It is bigger than a church staff. It is all of us at Community Christian. But here's the truth. It goes beyond Community Christian. It is all believers throughout history, throughout this planet, who bring their unique gifts, their personalities, their histories before King Jesus and allow him to shake everything up and say, whatever your will is, that's my will. I'm going to follow you. And then together, we can see something new that none of us can see right now. So I'm asking you, would you take a step today? And I know I get really excited and emotional, and that feels manipulative. So we're going to give you some time of quiet to talk to God about this. And I've asked Jason to come and lead us in a time of prayer and reflection so God can lead us in what he's calling each of us to do.